Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to journalist Teddy Schleifer about how American billionaires are practicing their philanthropy and why it matters. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on May 25th, 2022, with the unofficial beginning of summer just a couple of days away, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, And I'm very pleased to have as our guest today, journalist Teddy Schleifer, a founding partner at Puck, a new online publication that covers the intersection of the very rich with philanthropy. We'll let Teddy tell us more about what Puck is here in a moment. Teddy grew up in Dover, Delaware, where my understanding is very few of the very rich live, uh, and is a graduate of Princeton University, where many more of the very rich go to school, or at least send their children to school. Uh, From there, he ultimately went on to CNN and then to Recode, where he created Brand New Beat, centered on Silicon Valley wealth, covering the big donors uh, that power not just do-gooder nonprofits, but also super PACs. Teddy helped found Puck in 2021, and in his current role, And from his home in San Francisco, he continues to cover uh, the giving of Silicon Valley billionaires, diving into topics like campaign finance, big philanthropy, and tax avoidance. Teddy Schleifer, welcome. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That was a great intro. You're definitely... Definitely correct. Not many billionaires uh, in Dover, Delaware. <laughs> that was my understanding. The couple times I've, I've been in Dover, uh, there's a there's a race. There's a really good race that happens there every year, right? There is. It's, um, it's, uh, it's and- five five minutes from my house. I mean, it's funny because Do- Delaware is, um, you know, America's America Switzerland, right? Uh, and and is a state that, uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways, corporates uh, sorry, a lot of ways uh, caters yeah. to like the corporate elite, um, right. but but they don't uh, live there. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, it's a PO box, right? Um, I mean, this, the state. This, you know, this is not not the point of this podcast, but you know, no, that's the state okay. Was sort of, going about was sort of in the, Delaware all day long. Yeah, was, was sort of you know, a, uh, if, any, if any state has sort of been controlled by one billionaire, you can argue it's been Delaware with the Dupont mm-hmm. family, um, right. but uh, not many wealthy people, at least in Dover, which is the uh, sort of southern, um, you know, more more blue collar part of the state. It's a bluer collar part of the city. A lot of eggs and hens, is my understanding. Sussex yeah. County chickens, yes. Yeah. And beaches then DuPont, the yeah, beaches, lovely beaches, actually. I think a lot of people who are not from that part of the world don't understand that Delaware has some some of the greatest beaches on the – certainly in the mid-Atlantic. Um, certainly. And then the, yeah, right? That's not even a question. And, 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 and you know, obviously, um, you know, you mentioned part, part of the world, um, uh, what they think about Delaware. I mean, it's funny because – uh, Biden has been, you know, uh, has been uh, great for, 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 you know, name recognition of Delaware. Like, you know, I have, I have friends or acquaintances overseas, um, who, when Biden was elected in 2020, were, were like, ah, Delaware, that's, that's, that's that place you were from. Like, I remember, <laughs> I, I remember friends who would ask me like, what state Delaware was in? Um, <laughs> uh, oh, um, I think I once got like his Delaware in Michigan, which I think they were confused. Oh with my Detroit. goodness. 
<laughs> this does not speak well of the American educational system. Um, no, no, I'm saying, I'm saying this. These are people outside, outside well, of America. Steve. These, okay, yeah, thank God. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought, yes. boy, if they're from, you know, though, uh, though, then again, I feel like people might get that wrong, even even in the U.S. It's possible. I did just heard yesterday from my wife, a friend of, like, an acquaintance who was lamenting that her. 20 year old son or something didn't know the order of the months. And because like, this is a part of the, the cell phone sort of, you know, taking care of everything for us. I was like, that's, we should know the order of the months still. I, that's, hmm. that's something we should still go over in school. Uh, okay. That as well as uh, <laughs> the States, but okay. I, I didn't mean if you're overseas, you didn't necessarily need to know uh, where Delaware is, sure. uh, but yeah. now you do because there's, now you're, you're going to start getting quizzed on like, you know, states in like Mozambique and suddenly you know, <laughs> well our Mozambique listeners I apologize but yes uh, you're right I won't pass any of those quizzes for sure uh, <laughs> I do the provinces Canada I can get all right well let's talk about puck uh, Teddy um, what is it and why was it founded sure um, so so puck is a new publication started um, uh, middle of last year um, sort of centered on uh the inside conversation um, in in sort of the power centers in American culture. So there's people in, in Silicon Valley, in Hollywood, uh, in Wall Street, in Washington. Um, there are these people who sort of run the world, right? Who run um, our economy, who run our politics, uh, and, and not not to be too Bilderberg about it, but like um, these people have enormous influence. The American elite, um, and we want to cover them obsessively. So. Um, there are people in, in, in Washington, you know, whether you're Mitch McConnell, uh, or you're like the top lobbyist in DC who, who kind of control what happens in Washington, you know, in Hollywood, there's, uh, Ari Emanuel, you know, the head of one of the big talent agencies, but there's also like the publicists behind the scenes who make things happen. Or, you know, here in Silicon Valley, there's, um, you know, there's Reed Hoffman, one of the biggest donors in, in, in politics. And then there's kind of the people that Reed turns to for advice, right? These people are all important. Um, and so I think the, the core premise of, of Puck is caring about the guy and the guy behind the guy and understanding that, um, uh, the elite, uh, deserve kind of great coverage. Um, and it's not just kind of like tough coverage. I think there's also like an element of what these people are doing is, is genuinely fascinating and, um, and, uh, and fun and, and we can gossip about it all day. Um, so, yeah. so I, I joined, um, you know, I'm part of the founding team to, to write about the same thing I've been writing about for the last couple of years, which is in Silicon Valley, there's been an enormous era uh, of wealth creation, which maybe, maybe has peaked depending on the stock market, uh, <laughs> last couple of months, yeah. but maybe not, who knows? Like, um, you know, maybe this is just the beginning. Um, and what these people do with that money, um, has grave public importance. Um, what they do or don't do, matters uh and that matters in obvious ways like you know if you're peter Thiel and you're donating money to elect a senate candidate in in arizona or ohio like that obviously shapes public outcomes but it also matters in kind of less obvious ways like you know if you uh donate to um try to cure parkinson's um maybe maybe someone dies um of cancer instead of parkinson's because you didn't donate the money to cure cancer. And if you donate the money to cure cancer, maybe someone dies of Parkinson's and, and doesn't die of cancer. Um, so, so that sort of philanthropy is a source of, of power and it's a, it's a, you know, responsibility to use it well. And, um, uh, Silicon Valley, 
wealthy people are in the center of the action. Like, you know, really, if you are to cover wealth in America today, you know, you'd want to be in San Francisco, you'd want to be writing about the tech barons, because these are the richest people in the world, and, and they have enormous influence. So writing about Elon Musk or, or Larry Ellison or, or Jeff Bezos, um, to write about them is to write about capitalism in some ways and to write about kind of the the biggest picture possible. Um, so that's that, that's the, that's the premise of Puck. And that's that's how I fit into it. And your yeah, your beat is Silicon Valley in, in particular, right? I think so, um, though, you know, I reserve the right to, uh, to think about my <laughs> um, Are you covering all of philanthropy or are there other people writing on philanthropy for No, for I mean, I think it's, it's, I mean, like there's other folks, we have other folks covering kind of other power centers in, in Wall Street and um, in Washington and, and Hollywood, but um, I'm probably the, the philanthropy guy as much as there is one. Um, and look, I mean, obviously it's not that different uh, in all these places. We, we, can, we can talk about ways in which Silicon Valley is different, but it's not that different. Yes, right. There's certainly a family resemblance in philanthropy in Silicon Valley or in, in Tulsa. Um, sure. By the way, let anybody go off and get in, sucked into like hockey sites by looking for pockets. Puck. Oh, Dot yeah. News. No, there's a um, Dot news. Uh, Is that what I, you're I, I forget. I forget if I see this in like Google alerts or on Twitter. Like sometimes, you know, there, you'll see some random hockey publication get, end up in a end up in some tweet storm, and and they don't they don't know what's going on. Uh, no, Puck <laughs> news. It's not. Uh, it is not uh, as much as I. Love hockey. It's not, that's not yeah, right, right, right. Um, so, is there um, an particular editorial perspective? You're covering the American elite, as you say, obsessively. Um, is there a particular perspective that uh, permeates Puck, or is, or do, does each writer simply bring his or her own perspective to the? I mean, I think um, uh, I, I think I would say it, it's it's primarily kind of what I just described. These people have power. Uh, um, and like, we make no, uh, we don't like beat around the bush about that. Like these people, like, and, and like, you know, frankly, I, I find myself less interested in kind of questioning whether or not the power is legitimate or how it's, you know, whether these people should exist. Like some of the, I guess I find some of like the academic debates around, uh, billionaire power interesting. Though I'm also kind of grounded as a reporter in like the in like the real world, right? And like here on planet Earth, like these people have enormous power, and and um, we should report the hell out of what they're doing with it. And it's not like I think you can get sucked into sort of these ponderous discussions about you know should these people exist, right, or stuff like that. That kind of misses the point that these people do exist, and and um, whether or not they have fifty billion dollars or twenty five billion dollars, like doesn't really impact doesn't doesn't really impact the fact that these people should be covered and you know that we're not getting rid of them anytime soon so i think like the, the some of the one of the core editorial beliefs is about is about these people matter and i think it's also these people are much more interconnected in a way than we may that may have been true you know before i was born that that it's not as if there's like the silicon valley people and the washington people and the hollywood people and they all sort of you know live in their little you know 10 by 10 mile uh, play playgrounds that they're all intersecting with one another and lobbying one another and fundraising from one another and fighting one another. Um, um, and you know, that's to, to, to really understand and cover the world as it actually is, is to, is to acknowledge that and, and to not silo these people. Cause like they're, they're kind of our, our culture revolves around these people and that gives them 
kind of greater wings than they would if they were just kind of industry people, right? They're not industry people. They're kind of our cultural icons and our heroes and our villains. Um, so that's, that's, that's the other kind of big, I think, editorial idea. Is there, you've, you've been covering Silicon Valley wealth, ultra wealth, you might say for some years now. Um, what has surprised you since you got on this beat? Is there a particular finding, you know, or insight? Like, I didn't expect this to be the case when I started doing this kind of reporting. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, some to some extent, I'm surprised by how like little people actually. Do, and I know this sort of contradicts what I just said, but like, <laughs> like, 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 there is an element. I think like a meta criticism of, of my own coverage might be that like there is an element of these people not necessarily being as interesting as you might think, at least as as a as a sum. Um, look, I mean, like lots of wealthy people. Um, you know what the, what their kind of journey through philanthropy might be or politics might be is just one of risk aversion honestly you know yeah. it's 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 um okay sure they signed the giving pledge cuz like you know they yeah. respect Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett asked them to and then they you know go on with their life and they make kind of small charitable contributions here and there you know a couple million bucks a year Maybe they set up a foundation or a DAF because you know mm-hmm. their their tax consultant told them to. Like they go to an occasional political fundraiser when someone asks them to, or because they want to meet you know Cory Booker or whatever. Um, and then they like don't really do anything uh, mm-hmm. until they die, and they die, and you know they give fifty million bucks to Stanford and set up some endowed chair, you know, in the philosophy department. Right. Um, and like they're not really as much mockers, at least in the, in their lifetimes, as uh, you know reporters might hope them to be, because it's a juicier yeah. story, right? And like to right. some extent, I'm surprised by like the like the caution, honestly. I think that's um, great, I think it's a great insight. Yeah, the risk aversion because I've often thought that myself. Just to interject on um, the on philanthropists whom we uh, might expect are insulated from having to care about much risk, either reputational or financial, but that doesn't seem to actually be the case in real life. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. You, you tell me what, what does it look like from your perspective? Well, I, I just exactly, sorry, I didn't, I kind of cut you off there, but no, 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 but you, I mean, that's you, 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 exactly you, you, how it looks like from my perspective. So I'm really interested that you said that, that I've always been surprised at the risk aversion of the very wealthy because they, you're, you've reached the point, right? Where you can do what you, as they say, you have F you money, right? But very few people end up saying F you. Now, does that speak more to who is the type of person who gets to that point? Or does it speak more to the actual, that there's more social pressure and, and frankly, kind of a social control over how philanthropists spend their money than maybe we, we give ourselves credit for having in a way. If that makes sense, yeah, uh, yes. I mean, I mean, um, to some extent, right? Their their lack of uh, control, you know, is maybe a, it may be a good thing, right? If you believe that, sure, um, yeah. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it, it may be there more than you think. Yeah, right, right, right. Like if 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 you if you're concerned about these people having too much power, the the mm-hmm. the reality they're not doing as much as you think is is honestly reassuring, right? Right. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I mean, I mean, the people who do a lot, um are interesting, right? The Eric Schmidt's of the world, mm-hmm. the Peter Thiel's of the world, the, you know, Charles Koch's of the world, like, 
Um, right. But the average gazillionaire, like if you look at the Force 400 list, Jeremy, like it's always amazing how few of these people you've even heard of. You know, it's like, like yeah, you know, that's oh, true. here's some like, you know, petrochemical CEO from like 30 years ago, you know, who made mm-hmm. a bunch of money and is worth $5 billion and you've never heard of this person. Um, to some extent, that's because they don't want to be, you know, mm-hmm. names. Um, to some extent, it might just be because they aren't necessarily doing anything interesting. Um, and they're not really covering something up. They're just not actually doing anything interesting. Um, um, that's, that's okay. But um, uh, yeah. that, that, that's, that's been surprising to me. That's a really good answer. And yeah, and I think your point, yeah, they're not as intellectually interesting anyway as you might think. All right. Um, talk about a little bit about you cover sort of, I would say both two sides of giving. There's the, the as, as we put it, like the kind of the more do-gooder nonprofit, very uncontroversial 501c3 kind of giving. And then there's, which is all great. I'm not in any way denigrating it, obviously. And then there's the po- more political giving, whether that's to campaigns or as is obviously much more likely with people like this, super PACs um, and things of that nature. Um, mm. Talk about that intersection and, and what... Uh, what you see when you cover political giving in, in, in your particular part of the beat. Sure. Well, I'm not so sure it's, it, it's, it's that easy to distinguish in those two things. I mean, yeah. I, mean the, the, I mean, sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. Um, um, I mean, it's been interesting, you know, I, I used to cover, um, the, the kind of the Coke world and kind of the, the center right or kind of hard right, uh, parts of, of, of the Republican party. And like, I can tell you that like people who are donating, money to conservative nonprofits that um, are, are 501c4s or even to campaigns that um, uh, and, and you're a conservative mega donor and you think that this these groups will lift uh, people out of poverty and you know expand school choice and a whole host of kind of conservative dreams like you might seem you might think that's philanthropy um like i'll tell you it's it's no surprise to hear that you know democrats don't think that's philanthropy right democrats think that's politics um and that vice versa right you know uh conservatives look at you know lefty uh do-gooder stuff that you know happens to register voters in uh you know historically black neighborhoods in pennsylvania wisconsin and michigan and like conservatives don't think that's philanthropy like uh but liberals do right i mean so to some extent what is kind of the the political side of the beat and the philanthropic side of the beat like sort of depends on 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 your um yeah. your perspective uh, your, own, your own politics but like t- that, taking that aside um i mean the, the political side ha- has been transformed i mean obviously over the last decade you know post citizens united um you know the, the power of ultra, ultra wealthy people to um elect a friend or you know ideological compatriot um the the ability to at least attempt uh, has gotten much greater, right? I mean, um, I, I wrote a story last week, or, or I guess it's when it's coming out, but I'm recording this at the time I'm recording this last week. I wrote a story about yeah. a guy named Sam Bankman-Fried, who's um, the uh, founder of uh, a crypto exchange called FTX, and he's 30 years old. He's worth like 20 billion dollars, and um, he spent 15 million or, or uh, 13 million, I believe, uh, through his super PAC on a single congressional race in Oregon, a, a Democratic primary for uh, a new congressional seat. Um, an extraordinary amount of money for, for yes. a race like that. And the guy got like, you know, 1,800 votes or something like that. Not 18,000 votes. It was like he got whooped. Um, and, the, the, you know, the uh, it's, a, it's a good example of just how money doesn't always translate to, to victories. But like, 
the amount of money that people can spend on just like a random congressional race is, you know, certainly not the, not what the framers intended. Um, and it speaks to the, uh, the way that our system now allows wealthy people to, to play politics more than ever before. Um, yeah. and there's really like, you know, I, I'm saying this in, in 2022 and I'm sure I'll sound like some, some has been because it's, it's clear that the trends are heading in that are in a certain direction, right? There's been, uh, Supreme court obviously has decided that, uh, this is all, all kosher. Um, and people can now spend inordinate, you know, unlimited amounts of money with disclosure and outside of the walls of the campaigns, right? That's sort of the compromise that's been reached is, you know, you, campaigns can't spend as much money as you want, which is what some kind of free speech conservatives would like. Um, but you can't, you know, but super PACs can. So, you know, and that's, it's created this weird system right now where like the people who have enormous amounts of power in determining campaign outcomes aren't the campaigns themselves. They're like these like supporters who can't even talk to the campaign. Um, so it's created a very strange dynamic um, and made understanding super PACs and 501c4s very important to understanding politics. When I've thought about this in the past, and it's all very well put, uh, you know, it's just hard for me ever to come up to, with a – it may just be a law of nature that those who are the most powerful will seek to exercise their power. And there's really kind of – you know, the only way to limit their exercise of that power is to limit the power, if that makes sense. There's um, – uh, you know, we we have the super PAC campaign distinction that you just talked about now that is 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 kind of a joke, right? I mean, all every super PAC is actually connected to a particular campaign, um, and but in the in the end, it is somewhat reassuring, as you just pointed out, that you can spend thirteen million dollars to win eighteen thousand votes in a Democratic primary in Oregon. Um, so yep. I wonder, there's part of me sometimes just like, you know, rich person seeks to use wealth to influence world as he or she wants is sort of the oldest story in the world in a way. <laughs> it seems like this is, I wonder if there's any way around this, legislatively, socially, any, any way you might think of. I mean, look, it, it's pretty clear that, um, uh, I mean, no, the, the answer to your question, the answer to your question, I think is no. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's the short answer. You know, I, think, I think it's clear that we're heading in a direction where um, the, the rules are increasingly non-forced, even the rules that do exist. Um, you know, you see new innovations, I guess you could say, in, in campaign financing that um, uh, reduce disclosure, um, which to be clear, like some people want, right? Like, I mean, some people think there's too much disclosure, like some fundraisers think that, you know, why are all these, you know, philanthropists who give money to a super PAC, why are they being harassed online or, you know, doxxed or people showing up at their homes? Um, so, so you've seen innovations, I, I guess you can say that, make it harder and harder to follow the money, right? Now you see um, super PACs that raise money from 501c4s. So there'll be a, a dark money group that will raise money and I think they can send up to 50% of their money to express political advocacy groups. So you'll see some C4 raise $50 million, not disclose it, and then send $25 million to their super PAC. And then the $25 million might be all the money that's raised by the super PAC. And then the super PAC is, you know, technically yep. disclosing their donors, but they're disclosing the donor that is a dark money group. Um, um, and that is something that, you know, I think that was beginning to happen in Republican politics a couple of years ago, though it really has gone crazy uh, on the Democratic side on this, in, this, in the 2020 cycle. You'd see things 
um, like the 1630 fund, which is um, sort of a, a democratic uh, aligned interest group that doesn't disclose its donors. And they made tons of huge contributions to democratic super PACs. Um, and like, I think the tit for tat thing here is an important part of this, right? Where, um, and I, I sort of understand where you're coming from. If you're a democratic or Republican fundraiser, you're like, like I'm in a war for, you know, to win control of Congress. Like I'm not here to pass some purity tests here. Like I'm going to do whatever's legal and, you know, yep. God damn it. Like it's my, you know, if it's not yeah. legal, our compliance staff will tell us not to do it. But, but otherwise like they're going to do it. Why shouldn't we? I, I sort yeah. of get it um, from, from the uh, operative point of view. That's right. Well, let's, uh, that's all very good. We'll be right back. We'll take a quick break uh, and we'll be right back with Teddy Schleifer from Puck. Happy to be here for for this first uh, at least episode that we're recording of a um, uh, of the Givers, Doers, and Thinkers Readers Guide, and we're going to discuss a book with my colleague uh, Kieran Raval, our Chief Solutions Officer here at American Philanthropic. How you doing, Kieran? I'm great. How are you, Jeremy? I'm great. I'm great. We'll see how this goes. It'll be interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad we're doing a book discussion. It's very um, what we do here at Amphil. And you've picked a, a very interesting book that got a lot of play when it came out. It's been a while now, I guess, seven, eight years ago. Uh, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. Um, just a little bit of background. People should, Peter Thiel is the, um, what, PayPal founder? Yeah, one of the co-founders of PayPal. First right. outside investment in Facebook. Yeah. So he's done pretty well. There's some other things that he's been involved in, um, <laughs> to say the least. And he's like been involved in some interesting ideas, uh, as one adjective to put it, like seasteading and things like that. But this has nothing to do. This book has nothing to do with that stuff, right? Uh, this is a, a business book. Tell us, tell us what the argument is uh, that Teal makes in this book. Yeah. So um, it's really captured by the title Zero to One. Right, so it's a it's a book about entrepreneurship, and it comes out of a course he he taught, I guess. And the argument is that the the next great business that is built, and the next great idea that improves our lives and improves our society, is not going to come by copying um, something that already exists or improving incrementally on something that exists. So. Like even just from the back cover, it says the next Bill Gates will not build an operating system. That's actually a great like encapsulation of Thiel's argument. So it's it's about like innovative thinking that's really like optimistic around like how can we build a better future, and like specifically how can startups do that? Not in some weird um, uh, dystopian sense, I, I don't think, but in actually making the world a better place. Yeah, um, there's uh, certainly, I think the background of this is that Teal thinks, if I have this correctly, that we have, against all the rhetoric that we might hear, we've become a much less innovative nation and innovative people. Is that correct? Yes, yes. 
Yeah. And then what's the argument about, um, isn't there an argument about monopoly? How like the, the goal should be to monopolize a particular sector? Is that correct? There is. One of his uh, big arguments in the book is that monopoly is good um, and competition uh, it kills profits and ultimately kills business, right? So do you want to be Google where you own like, you know, Google Chrome, I think controls 60 or 70 or 80% of web browsing traffic. Like do, that's a monopoly, right? Do you want to be Google in that um, sense? Or um, I don't know, do, do you want to be like uh, Coca-Cola who's competing ruthlessly with Pepsi every day? Yeah. Yeah. Which is an interesting idea for someone I don't think fa- it, it, this is coming from the perspective of a business owner, not from the perspective of a government regulator, right? I assume, or just from a citizen. Um, so tell me what you found most interesting about the book, unique uh, key takeaways for, for you. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a couple of things. One is I, um, I really enjoy applying Teal's thinking both to uh, business and to the nonprofit uh, sector. Um, I think there's there's learnings for both. But a couple of um, key takeaways in addition to some of the ones we, we just talked about are, like one, he, he has this line that um, he starts uh, his interviews with, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Or he flips that around and says, what valuable company is no one building? And that's kind of the starting point of him getting you to think innovatively uh, around going from zero to one, not from sort of one to 1.1 or 1.2, right? So that's an interesting uh, question that that I come back to uh, in my own work a lot. Um, Another uh, key takeaway for me is, is, uh, he says at one point, you are not a lottery ticket. So you have agency. And this is his kind of positive, optimistic vision around like, hey, think for yourself, don't follow the herd because you're not going to actually find success or solve problems by doing what everyone else is doing or by building incrementally on what everyone else is doing. So mm-hmm. um, you're not sort of uh, subject of chance or fate. You actually have agency. You can think for yourself. That's a very empowering message that I think right. you know, business owners and, and nonprofit leaders can, can take away. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is... Um, he goes through kind of a, a series of uh, equations on the front end, a couple of which I'll pull out, is like, um, and, and he, the way he sets this up is this is in juxtaposition to the thinking that comes out of the 08 crash. So his kind of pushback on that conventional wisdom is he says, like, number one, like, um, taking risk is good, Have, being bold is good, right? Mm-hmm. There was a kind of conservatism that came out of the mm-hmm. 08 crash. Um, two, he says, having a bad plan is better than than no plan, right? So, so <laughs> don't let the yeah, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, and then third is is he says that um, uh, sales and product both matter, right? So I think there was a thinking that um, really uh, doubled down on product, right? And he says actually sales matters as well. Um, I'd apply that, especially in the nonprofit space, to say. Programs and fundraising matter together. If you think about, in that sense, sales and product as being analogous to fundraising and programs, and we see this in our work, the more the two teams work together, typically you end up with better programs and better fundraising results. Right, right. That's great. And I like the what the question, what valuable company is no one building now? If I were 
a nonprofit leader or a uh, a philanthropist or philanthropic officer? That's a great question to ask. What valuable nonprofit is no one building now? And maybe even within your nonprofit, what valuable uh, initiative is no one building right now, right? But what valuable program just doesn't seem to be available? I think that that's a pretty dang good question to um, to start off some good innovative thinking with. It is. And and I think there's another flavor of that question too, which is like, um, it, is this project organized the right way? I think my, my hypothesis is that there are a lot of um, nonprofits out there that actually could be for-profits, could be better yeah. organized or better, more effective in what they're trying to achieve by building a business out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I think the flip side is true too. There's actually, I think, an increasingly number of sort of uh, socially aligned or socially conscious businesses that yeah. you you read the pitch and you're sort of like, man, this, this sounds like it might be better as a nonprofit. You might actually be more successful, you know, raising philanthropic funds to to achieve your end here too. Yeah, it's great. And you can do both. As we know, there are innovative ways a nonprofit can own a business. A nonprofit can simply do business and build a revenue stream from selling things, products and services. That's totally fine. Um, as long as you continue to meet the public support test and, and so forth. Um, but you can also have these kind of sister entities um, that follow the law. Uh, yeah, you can go both ways. I think that's a really good point. I remember seeing, like, I remember back in the day, this is 10 years ago now, when places like Slate and the Atlantic were trying to figure out how to survive or just started asking people for money. Um, and people would give them money, <laughs> you know, without just buying a subscription. Uh, but they might have been better off with a supportive, a supporting foundation or a sister nonprofit. Anyway, so yeah. I, I like, like where you, you're headed. You there. see some interesting uh overlaps between like the philanthropic space and the startup space when you get into like foundations that are pursuing mission related investments yeah. or program related investments and that sort of thing so it's, it's almost like the lines um blur a little bit more than than we might think they do um and that might not be a bad thing you know at mm-hmm. the end of the day very good awesome well thank you karen the uh, book was is peter Thiel's zero to one Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. Uh, Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right. We are back with uh, journalist Teddy Schleifer, founding partner at Puck, uh, which you can find online. I think it's puck.news. Right, Teddy? That's right. Okay, great. Make sure I'm sending people to the right place. And you can also follow Teddy on uh, Twitter uh, at Teddy Schleifer. That's S-C-H-L-E-I-F-E-R. Um, and you can follow him there. You're, are you active on Twitter? I, I'm assuming I you are. extraordinarily active on Twitter. You have to be. You're a journalist, right? I, yeah. yeah. I, I am not extremely active. Anybody. Uh, in fact, I don't think I even have an account anymore. Really? But anyway, yeah. Do you not, yeah, do just, you not- yeah. It's quite possible, actually. <laughs> people, people like, like, I'm always amazed by people. Like, I mean, people like send you tweets a lot, and you just like look them on a, on a browser, or like, do you? No, I don't know. Twitter? I never go. If they send me tw- tweets for the last three years, I'd have no idea of knowing. Oh my god! No way. Yeah. So sorry out there if you've sent me a tweet. I apologize. Also, you if you've friended it. me on Facebook, I haven't seen that either. And okay. if you've done anything on Instagram, I haven't seen that. <laughs> it's a, but you can find me on LinkedIn. I will. Res- I'll respond. That's the one concession, Teddy, that I make to social media in my hmm. in my life. 
<laughs> and you know what? Life is much better for it, at least in my from my perspective. Uh, but um, I'm glad that there are others who who can who can put up with all that. All right, let's get let's talk about some specific people. I'll just ask you a few questions here. Um, we talked a lot of like high level issues. Who's the most interesting giver you've covered so far? Hmm. Um, I, I, I find myself interested in sort of uh, in the younger generation, uh, people who are uh, challenging sort of the conventional wisdom in philanthropy. Um, um, so a couple of people come to mind. Um, one is Patrick Collison, who is the founder of Stripe. Um, the payments platform is worth some gazillions of dollars. Um, Patrick, who I've gotten to know a little bit, is um, uh, 35, maybe. Uh, he's Irish American. He's got a you know very blonde, fair-skinned guy uh, with with a you know charming Irish accent. Um, and Patrick has uh, been spending a lot of his time philanthropically thinking about science funding and ways in which kind of the scientific uh, funding establishment is, is broken. Um, and he's been talking about about that and as funding new new institutions that are, I guess, to overgeneralize here, like meant to kind of fund individual scientists on on individual projects and less mm-hmm. on like funding, like a research institution. Department. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, he thinks lots of that he thinks lots of that is bureaucratic, and um, even you know the ways that government agencies fund science is pretty bureaucratic. Right. Um, I guess similarly, similarly aged, uh, I, I've written a lot about Dustin Moskovitz, who's one of the founders of Facebook and is um, um, one of the, the leading funders of effective altruism, which, as listeners may know, is is, is the way or is the belief that um, money should go toward the most effective thing possible, um, even if that means not funding your alma mater, even if that means not funding your local city, even if that means not funding, you know, the hospital where you were born, um, it means funding, you know, direct cash transfer to somebody you've never met in Rwanda, um, which is sort of a challenging uh, construct for philanthropy, though, though it is becoming more in vogue, especially during COVID. Um, But, you know, effective altruism is, is, is interesting. And Dustin Moskowitz has also gotten more involved with politics and democratic politics. And he's been trying to kind of bring the effective altruist playbook to uh, anti-Trump advocacy. Um, so that, that's been interesting, but yeah, just in general, I, I, I like, or I guess I respect, or, or at least find intellectually fascinating the people who are younger, who are doing things differently than, than their predecessors have. Uh, you mentioned effective altruism. Yeah. Which we have talked about on this podcast. Um, yeah. both, uh, both, uh, positively and negatively. Uh, what other trends in giving, uh, are there other, yeah, trendy theories or philosophies of giving, uh, especially on your beat that you've come up across recently. Look, I mean, beyond DA, I mean, look, I mean, there's 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 lots of. Um, uh, I, I think you know we're seeing also sort of the the increasing you know lack of disclosure is a trend, right? Uh, uh, people who are increasingly routing donations through DAFs or family offices and not even setting up foundations. Um, and frankly, like, why would you at this point? You know, if, if you like a DAF or a family office, I know there's some different tax treatments, but like, I think in general, wealthy people, you know, are, are, are increasingly gravitating toward, toward things that non do not disclose. I think that's one trend. Uh, the, the other trend I think is, is maybe, um, 
you know, is the, the rise of giving circles and the rise of sort of collaborative vehicles for, for, for donating. I know that's not, you know, breaking news, um, but just the ways in which people increasingly want to do things together and leverage their resources. And you sort of have these like super connector consultants who, you know, can, can bring together, you know, gazillions of dollars in net worth. Um, those are some of the things that interest me, at least out here in Silicon Valley. No, that's good. Um, I'll ask you another question about, see if it brings out another person to your mind. Okay. Um, someone who comes across as particularly genuine, or maybe another way to put this would be truly interested in whatever um, they're giving is focused on more than burnishing a reputation or, uh, mm. or, or, or planting, you know, planting seeds that will allow them to from go to A to B, you know, socially or politically or whatever. It just, just really seems like a genuine, I almost want to say good person uh, insofar as you can judge that sort of thing. That's fun. Um, um, I mean, look, I mean, I, I think the reality is that, that um, philanthropy, philanthropy does burnish people's reputations, whether or not they want it, want it to or not. Um, and it's hard to uh, do charitable giving without that being an, uh, an externality of the gift, um, regardless of whether or not, you know, that's the point. I, um, I think it just sort of happens. Um, I, I mean, I think some of the philanthropy backlash to Bill Gates is overstated. Um, I think that Gates is, you know, I'd rather have Gates in the world than not. Um, I think during COVID, it showed, you know, that not every billionaire is a policy failure, as, as liberals like to say. Um, you know, I think the divorce, uh, as painful as I'm sure it is, um, I think the impacts of the Gates Foundation divorce, uh, sorry, the Gates divorce for the foundation are probably exaggerated. Um, um, so, I think he's an interesting, interesting figure. Um, I think Michael Bloomberg, uh, you know, clearly has marshaled a lot of his net worth uh, into making the world reflect his values on things like climate, on things like education. Um, you know, you can disagree with him all you want, but he is actively moving money. Um, so, you know, those are those are both conventional answers, but I think they're both interesting people. Can I flip that on um, you? Who, 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 do, who do you think is, is doing? Teddy, I'm interviewing you. I don't know. Uh, so. Gosh, yeah. Well, obviously, I don't. What's interesting about what you do and what I do, the the difference is, I, I actually rarely come into contact with the ultra wealthy, uh, the sort of figures that you're naming. Um, there are a couple of tiers down, but I tell you, when you get to people who are, you know, that may maybe they're hundreds of millionaires, um, mm, sure. I'm giving away ten million, twenty million a year. Um, I, I've run into all, any number of very genuine people. Uh, who are really, uh, of course, you're right, insofar as their philanthropy is known, giving burnishes one's reputation. That's just sort of like just one of the natural consequences of uh, of, of the action. But uh, yeah, there are a lot, I think. I think it'd be um, in my world. So yeah, there, there are a ton from many different walks of life. Um, it's at next tier up, though, there are two tiers up where you, where you deal with, where I think that just would be hard... Uh, hard to do in a way because it's you're so on display uh, in in a publicly or socially uh and you really can't even run away from it uh that i think i can understand why it'd be very hard to um sort of be be real so i, I don't have a great answer for you other than i many many people um i'm trying to think of there's one name i could um give but i i can't right now 
I, let me say this. I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you a, a distinction, see what you think. You're dealing sure. with new money people mainly, right? These are people who made their own fortunes. Um, often I'll be dealing with people who did not. They inherited it. They made it the yeah. old-fashioned way. Um, and what I have found just on the ground is that as a philanthropist, if you're dealing with them as philanthropists, in general, you'd rather deal with the old money people. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they tend to have inherited also often some wisdom about what is possible to do with their wealth and what isn't possible. Uh, I'm very anti-effective altruist, so I, I like often the old money people are specifically devoted to a particular place, a particular region, a particular um, uh, community. Uh, and they, yeah, they don't have some of the problem with new money uh, people often they think, well, gee, I made, I made Facebook work. I'll solve X over here and X can be made a mess. It's a very dangerous, hubristic thing, it often seems to me, to want to change the world. Let me put it that way. <laughs> and new money often is more sure of their ability to change the world for better than, than old money is. I'll let you comment on that. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the psychological effects of inheriting money uh, are very different than psychological effects of, of making the money yourself. I mean, if you inherit the money, maybe you think that you have an obligation to not spend it all, right? That, that, that there should be yeah. an inheritor, uh, that you should have an heir to, to your inheritance on your own, right? Um, uh, if you make the money all yourself, maybe you don't think that way. In fact, maybe you explicitly think that um, it would screw your kids up to get the money. Um, right. so, so definitely it is a different, different beast, um, to make the money yourself through your own grit and, and determination than it is to, to kind of take it through, uh, the, uh, the estate, the estate planning process. Yeah, it just, it does seem to really just result in a different uh, approach to philanthropy overall. And we're speaking, I'm obviously speaking in broad strokes here, but, sure. and it, 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 it is interesting. Um, all right. So talk a little bit about the right. You've written a couple of articles in Puck. Uh, uh, recently, yep. um, that that talk a little bit about things going on in philanthropy on the on, for lack of a better term, among conservatives or center the center right. Uh, what are you what are you seeing over there? What what interesting stuff might be happening? Yeah, so so um, I, I think that the uh, you know the conservative philanthropy world uh, used to be kind of boring. Um, it used to be centered on kind of these, these center right foundations, um, uh, institutions like, you know, AI or, um, frankly, the, the types of people who go to or involve in American philanthropic, like, um, it, it was kind of mainline conservative groups, uh, Christian groups, um, you know, on the more political side, you had things like the club for growth, um, the chamber of commerce, the Coke network, Republican Jewish coalition, sort of um, uh, donor groups that engaged in kind of mainline conservative politics and sort of celebrated donor power. Um, what, what I was struck by uh, going to the, going to the conference in Orlando, um, Jeremy, is just is just the ways in which that 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 conversation is changing, and you're starting to see sort of a conservative backlash to philanthropy in the same way that like Anand Girharda does. Um, I'm mispronouncing his name, the last name. The same way that Anand sort of attacks philanthropy from the left, um, you know, there are people attacking philanthropy from the right, uh, and and it's made some strange bedfellows where, you know, people like uh, JD Vance, um, the Ohio Senate Republican nominee, uh, is talking about we need to tax the Harvard Endowment, right? Stuff like that, sort of going after kind of the sacred cows uh, uh, in philanthropy, which is you know tax exempt institutions. Um, 
So, so I think that, that, that's been interesting. I mean, maybe I'm uh, coming to the scene too, too recently. And, you know, I've talked with some people who, um, you know, say actually, you know, conservatives were, you know, against concentrated wealth and concentrated philanthropy 50 years ago. And, you know, I, I plead, I plead my ignorance there. Um, um, but at least in modern history, at least in recent history, uh, there's, there's, this is new. Um, so it's been an interesting dynamic. Yeah, there's a bit of a shift. Uh, the populist wave uh, moment has penetrated um, uh, you know, sort of center right, sort of thinking about philanthropy to some extent, certainly not entirely uh, as well. I think that's a really good point. Um, and then you recently wrote, this just came out uh, the other day, you're talking about what you were characterizing as, I, I might push back on you on this a little bit, but it'd be a good conversation. Sure. sure. Alert right word among tech moguls. Um, uh, recently, uh, uh, Elon yeah. Musk only one of them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Sure. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that like Silicon Valley is a conservative place, but I do think that some of the, the liberal, um, typecasting has, has, has overlooked the fact that like, there are a lot of conservatives in tech and, and fundamentally the, the economic, uh, value creation is not that different than wall street, right? I mean, it's, it's money that's made um, through stock market, through low taxes and, you know, uh, and the, the, you know, laissez-faire, invisible hand, you know, right. uh, Milton Friedman, Adam Smith school of economic thought. Um, and, um, I think it's produced lots of people who believe that, uh, regulation and unions and stuff like that are threats to the American free market system. And, uh, I, I honestly think that like Trump, you know, the, the rise of Trump in 2015 has sort of put that debate on ice, right? And it's sort mm. of papered over things because like the, if you're yeah. a conservative, like, I mean, I, I don't think this is necessarily wrong. Like it, it was hard to like disentangle being a conservative from Trump, right? And, and um, you know, people in tech certainly did not like Trump. Uh, not, it wasn't even really for his economic policies. It was like, you know, things like immigration, climate, frankly, just like his authoritarian the style he's across the board, his style, the tweets, everything. Right. So it was like, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you were a Republican or if you had center right beliefs and you were in the tech industry, like you couldn't really, you know, speak about those things without mm -hmm. fairly or unfairly, like, you know, you'd have to really be like, well, I'm, you know, I like Paul Ryan, but like not Trump. And like, you right. know, Paul Ryan clearly is not where the party is headed, right. The party is headed toward the Trumpian direction. And like, um, um, and now that Trump is out of office, I think you're beginning to see Republicans or conservatives be more outspoken about their beliefs. Like, I think Bezos is a great example. Like Bezos is, you know, someone who's been described by associates for a long time as sort of like libertarian center, right? You know, he, he, he's spoken publicly or it's been reported publicly that, you know, he headquartered Amazon in Washington state explicitly to like avoid, uh, state capital gains, I think state capital gains tax or state income taxes, mm -hmm. low taxes in Washington state. Um, right. um, and you know, uh, he's CEO of Amazon. So, you know, he couldn't really say anything publicly, but like now that he's not CEO of Amazon, he's sort of just like popping off on random, you know, random conservative things, you know, going after Biden in these kind of caustic ways, um, talking about inflation, which is obviously like a le legit issue, but you know, he, he cares a lot about, you know, expressing his conservative politics in a way that I do not think he could have two years ago. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, so, yeah. and, you know, there's also people like, you know, Elon Musk, obviously, who, who's, 
you know, now is a loud and proud Republican. Um, I'm sure like that's like 40% just kind of BS because of whatever else he's dealing with, with Twitter or the media, or, you know, is this actually a legitimate political evolution? Um, I don't know, but, but, but Elon and, and Bezos, I think speak to the fact that Silicon Valley's maybe never really been as liberal as, as people claim it to be. I, oh, I do think I have no perspective on, on that claim. Uh, that may be true. Um, it, it, I think your claim about, um, sort of the receding of Trump from public life makes it possible for these sorts of people to sort of you know, themselves speak in a, in a more um, right-leaning way. That's a really insightful point. But there is, I think there's also, what would you say if I said this? <laughs> there is also something to potential, like, um, it's not just the right that has gotten more rightish in a way uh, in, in the yeah. last few years, but the left has become more leftish. And this is the point of, you know, Elon's famous meme on, meme, on yeah. which I did. Someone sent that to me, Teddy, even oh, though yeah, I'm not that's, on a good, that's, a, that's a good example. <laughs> um, is it there something to that potentially where someone like uh, Bezos or Musk and many, many lower profile people in, in Silicon Valley may feel like, well, ho, I didn't realize, um, I feel like I've been standing in the same place, and but it seems like things just gotten even more left leaning out here. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I mean, you know, I guess the, the counter argument would be like, you know, in 2020, Democrats nominated Joe Biden, Republicans nominated Donald Trump. I mean, I mean, like, well, I mean, like the the like, has the party moved left? Like, I don't know. It's sort of about my pay grade. I mean, I mean, I mean, to some extent, like, you know, the, there's a rise of of during the Trump years of, of kind of lefty activists for sure. Um, um, and those people have, have influence and there's clearly a left wing and, you know, the rise of Bernie and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, wokeism and, you know, a whole new set of issues that Democrats care about, um, or at least have to be sensitive to. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's true though. I don't, I don't know if I'd say that that is like the majority of the party now, you know, like, I mean, again, they nominated the 80 year old white dude. Um, um, but reasonable minds can differ. And like, you know, the, you know, the counter argument Republicans nominated Trump. So like that, and you know, we'll see what happens in 24, but like that, that does seem like the majority of the party on, on in conservative politics, but reasonable minds can disagree. Well, Teddy, since we are both reasonable minds, we'll leave wow. it at that. that was great. All right. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate your time uh, today. That was a great conversation. Um, how can people follow you and, and Pac and your work there? Sure, sure. So, um, uh, two things that I recommend. One is I'm on Twitter as, as, uh, unfortunately, uh, handles Teddy <laughs> Schleifer. Um, and the other way, um, is through, uh, puck, P U C K dot news. Um, you can go to, uh, puck dot news and subscribe, subscribe to my work. Excellent. And I encourage everybody to do that. It's, uh, it is always a fascinating read. It's really well written. Uh, and there's other good stuff on there too. If you are interested in what the American elite are up to, as Teddy told us, um, that is, uh, there's probably no better place to go than to puck right now. So thank you, uh, Teddy Schleifer. We appreciate it and we wish you well in your work. Thanks so much.